We're now in the third week of Lent, in the third week of our series in Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, we've been connecting with God's passion for cities. God's desire to see cities renewed. And we've been considering how God calls even us to go. To go to the places that need renewal most. To go even to our own city for its common good and renewal. But we've also been exploring how the book of Jonah is about refusing this call of God. Jonah exposes how we attempt to shrink God down into a God that has no mission that extends beyond the walls of our own comfort and preferences, beyond the walls of the places that we would prefer to stay. But when we do this, and we looked at this last week, the God we're serving isn't the true living God. It is a small g God, an idol that we've constructed. And the problem is that like Jonah, we'll often choose our own demise over living with a fuller picture of who God really is. We don't want God on his terms. We want God on our terms. And so Jonah, he chooses death. He chooses a watery grave. He chooses being tossed overboard rather than life with God. But God's hands, they're not tied by our disobedience. And we'll see that God does not give up on Jonah even in his disobedience. And so this week, we join Jonah in the belly of the whale. And once Jonah realizes he can descend no further from God, he finally prays. And on the surface, this looks like a good and godly and eloquent prayer. We should get Jonah up doing our intercessory prayer. This is impressive. Uh, And he finally opens dialogue with God. He says all the right things. But if we really pay attention to what Jonah says, it should leave us wondering, what sort of prayer is this? Is this truly a repentant prayer or is this a a self-seeking prayer? Is it said in adoration and love of who God is, or is Jonah still praying to his small g, God? And it forces us to ask ourselves, when we return to God in prayer, why are we praying? And if we pray while clinging to our false ideas of God, why would God even answer us? This is what Jonah wants us to grapple with this morning. So, open your Bibles with me to Jonah, starting in chapter 1, verse 15. So the sailors picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We addressed this in week one, and now I feel like we need to have the talk again. Uh, People want to ask, they want to know. Was Jonah really swallowed by a whale? No, it's an easy answer. No, of course he wasn't swallowed by a whale. He was swallowed by a great fish. I think that about sums it up. Uh, Okay, first things first. Good and faithful and intelligent Christians disagree over whether this event literally took place. That's okay. But here's how I think we have to look at any miracle in the scriptures. Because that's what this is. It's a miracle. And so we have to look at it forwards, and we have to look at it backwards. We look at it forwards. God created all things, all things. And once he set the wheels in motion, he didn't step back from the universe and let it run by itself. No, the scriptures testify that God actively sustains the universe. If this is true, could God appoint a whale to swallow up Jonah? Yeah, he could. We we also need to look at it backwards, though. 
The primary miracle that any person really needs to grapple with isn't whether Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish. It's whether Jesus really did rise from the grave. And if you accept that premise, then you work backwards from there. If God is the sort of God who raises his son from the dead, could the same God appoint a great fish that swallows up Jonah while preserving his life? Yeah, he could. That's the issue. In light of who God has... Uh, revealed himself to be, could this have happened? If we let God be God, of course, we have to say this could happen. Now, you can debate whether this literally happened based on the genre of the text. That's fine. But we have to agree as Christians that this could have happened. And personally, I think it did. But far more importantly, far more importantly, this isn't the question Jonah wants us to ask. The point of his book isn't to get people asking, did this really happen? If that's all you can see in the book, you're missing the point. Jonah has other questions he wants us to ask of ourselves. Look again at chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Once again, we're encountering God's sovereignty. Over and over and over again, the book of Jonah reminds us that all of creation is the Lord's. Jonah is never a step ahead of God. Last week we saw Jonah, he sets his own path. He flees from God, but the sea is the Lord's. And so God appoints a storm to thwart Jonah's path. But Jonah, he attempts to flee again. And so he's tossed into the waves. He chooses death, but the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so God appoints a whale to swallow up Jonah. Jonah cannot escape God's sight and hand, not even in his attempts to seek death. And as Jonah will discover, even in the place of the dead, what the Hebrews call Sheol, God is found there. So far, Jonah's descent has been a descent down. Jonah went down into Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into the innermost part of the ship. He was thrown overboard down into the depths of the ocean. And so now Jonah can descend no further. This is where his disobedience has led him. He now resides in the uncomfortable confines of a great fish's belly. But it's in this bizarre place and circumstance that we read in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. When Jonah can descend no further, he finally turns to God. He prays. It's interesting because the sailors asked him, pray to your God. And Jonah refuses. But now that the sailors are out of sight, we're told he finally prays to his God. And his prayer is the only thing highlighted during his residence in the belly of the great fish. Not the smell the squishiness, not the undigested clams, not the darkness. Jonah wants us to focus on and consider his prayer. So look at it with me, verses one through or 2 through 7. Jonah prays, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. The language Jonah uses in his prayer is very telling. Jonah is in distress. He's in the belly of Sheol. And while Jonah hasn't literally died and gone to the place of the dead, he sees that for him, the belly of the fish is transformed into Sheol. From his vantage point, he's experiencing death. He's in the place of the dead. The waters have closed in over him. The deep has surrounded him. He's sunk to the roots of the mountains. He knows he can descend no further. He is in the pit. But it's because his circumstances can get no worse that Jonah finally prays. It's because he's in distress that Jonah called out. It's because he's in Sheol that he cries out to the Lord. And this is good. Because sometimes, when things can get no worse, our hearts just get even harder. Everything falls apart and we just dig our feet in and say, still, I will not speak to God. Or when things seem like they can get no worse, we blame God all the more. How could you allow this to happen in my life? But like Jonah, distress can also lead us to a breaking point where we turn to God in prayer. And sometimes, and I know this isn't easy, believe me, sometimes God intervenes in our lives by by allowing our lives to fall apart. Things don't work out. Things fall apart. Nothing seems to work. And God allows this because it's in the distress of our circumstances. And sometimes even in the distress of the consequences that we deserve, that our hardened hearts allow the smallest crack. But it's in this crack that God's light begins to shine into us. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there. You've seen God break your hardened heart, and meet you in your distress, or you're there presently, or you're about to be there. Things get bad enough for Jonah that he finally prays. But Jonah's prayer, it exposes something rudimentary about the human heart. We love, we just love to rewrite history. You know, make it sound better, you know, clean it up a little bit in this part. Gloss it up over here. You know, essentially what I do anytime I tell a story on Sunday. Uh, there's something about the human heart. We just love to rewrite stories. A good example, I just love, I love, 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 love to tell people about my career as a designer. Uh, because I worked at some pretty prestigious places, like Rethink. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, I want some awards, and, and I feel accomplished in that field. And I'll be a little bashful about it, if you ask me, but deep down, I just love to talk about it. And I love to tell Christians in particular that I worked at Relevant Magazine as their creative director at the age of 24. Now, if you don't know what Relevant Magazine is, that's not impressive. But if you do, Alistair reached the pinnacle of Christian hipsterdom at 24. (laughs) What I conveniently leave out in telling this story is that I was technically laid off. But the CEO and I both knew what was going on. I was being fired because I got busted talking behind his back. I was 24. I was immature. Uh, But I got what I deserved. 
No, but you know, 99.99999% of the time until now, uh, I just like to say I worked at Relevant because it builds me up. It makes me feel good. We like to rewrite our circumstances. We like to cast ourselves in history to appear more positive than we really are. Look closely at verse 3. Jonah prays, for you, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Jonah blames God for his location. He blames God for his distress. Jonah blames God for casting him into the sea, but he's rewriting what actually took place. Let's go back onto the ship for a second. Not once did Jonah pray or seek direction from the Lord. He simply thought that death was what God wanted for him. He thought judgment was the only option, so he instructed the sailors to throw him overboard. And it's a strange thing, because if Jonah knew that was what God wanted, he could just jump off of the ship. Why pull the sailors into it? By instructing others to do it for him, he can shift the blame. He can shift the blame to the sailors, and he can ultimately now shift the blame to God. But what happened on the ship is that Jonah interpreted the circumstances for himself, and he decided what God must want. And so now as he prays, he blames God. God is the one who threw him overboard. Jonah, he says, you did this to me, God. And as he prayerfully reflects on his location, he casts himself as a victim. He's extensively quoting the Psalms, and he chooses Psalms where the people who wrote those prayers are suffering innocently. He identifies himself as those suffering at the hands of their enemies or as a psalmist who is, you know, unjustly suffering. Jonah still doesn't own that his actions and his decisions led him to this point. He doesn't recognize himself as the rebellious prophet who wants nothing to do with who God really is. And in this eloquent and psalm-rooted prayer, there's not a hint of confession. There's no recognition of his deep disobedience. Ironically, Jonah quotes from Psalm 31, but only selectively. He ignores lines like, My strength fails because my iniquity and my bones waste away. In fact, out of all of the options Jonah has before him in the Psalms of Confession, he does not draw from a single one. When he prays, there's no contrition. There's no apology. There's no repentance for fleeing God. Jonah is not sorry. He didn't even throw on like a hashtag, sorry, not sorry. But to be fair, Jonah does express some profound truths in his prayer. God hears us when we call out to him. He answers us. He hears our voice. He can deliver us. He can bring our lives out of the pit. Even from the depths of our failures and running from him, God still gives ears to our cry. But it seems from the focus of Jonah's prayer that he only reminds himself of these truths in hopes that he can escape his circumstances. And this reminds us that often when we pray from a place of distress, our prayers become myopic and small and self-focused, and we might actually give very little thought to being with God and returning to God over the overriding concern to escape whatever is causing us distress. And so we bank on some truth. God listens. God hears. God answers. But our hope is just to be delivered from whatever we're facing and not delivered to the presence of God. 
That's what's going on here in Jonah. Jonah, he just wants out of the belly of the whale. He wants out of the belly of Sheol. And what's even more disconcerting is that the idol Jonah constructed out of false ideas about God remains firmly intact. Look at verse 8. Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's likely that in praying this, Jonah is still thinking about his time on the boat. He's still dismissing the sailors as pagans who worship vain idols. Because of who they are, Jonah believes they've forsaken their opportunity to know the steadfast love of the Lord. But this is just another example of how Jonah is rewriting history. The sailors are the ones who forsake uh, their, their vain idols and turn to the living God and his steadfast love. Jonah is the one who holds on so tightly to his vain idol that he chooses death over life with God. Jonah is the one still worshiping his small g version of God. How do we know this? Well, look more closely at his prayer. Look at verses 4 and 7. Where does God dwell? In his holy temple. While there's undeniably truth to that statement, it's clear that Jonah still sees God as the God of Israel, not the God of the nations like God is calling him to see. Jonah's convinced that God will be found in Jerusalem, that he will return to Jerusalem and the temple. God won't be found on that ship and definitely not in Nineveh. And Jonah still remains blind to how he has constructed an idol and how he himself has forsaken God and God's steadfast love. So when we read in verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you and what I have vowed I will, I will pay. Jonah's words should ring hollow, just like his words were hollow on the ship when he said, I fear the Lord. As we'll see next week, uh, when Jonah follows through on the call of God, it's pathetic bare minimum obedience. His fear of the Lord is still totally questionable. Jonah just wants out of the belly of Sheol. And if that means he has to do the whole Nineveh thing, fine. So be it. But it's disgruntled, begrudging faithfulness at best. But the crux, the crux of Jonah's prayer, I love this, is closing words, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Really, Jonah? Really? Are you going to be okay with what the implications of that means? Are you going to be okay if God answers that prayer? What if salvation came to the sailors on the ship? What if salvation comes to Nineveh? How are you going to fare then, Jonah? Can you pray salvation belongs to the Lord? Often we pray and we don't really realize what we're asking for. Uh, in the movie, Evan Almighty, because, uh, you know, I exude cultural relevance, uh, Morgan Freeman plays God, because with a voice like Morgan Freeman's, that's what you do. Uh, and if you haven't seen the movie, it, it's, it's funny and, and all that. And, and there's a moment in it, though, where there's some profound theological truth spoken. I was really blown away. Uh, Freeman playing God, he says this. Let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, okay, I can't do his voice, but if someone prays for patience, you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? 
If he prayed for courage, does God just give them courage? Or does he give them the opportunities to be courageous? If someone prays for their family to be closer, do you think God just zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? I love this. In the same way, you shouldn't think that you can pray, salvation belongs to the Lord, while holding on to your false idols. Deep down, Jonah still thinks that salvation belongs to Israel. And as the book will go on to show us, Jonah is not okay when salvation comes to Nineveh. But in praying this, Jonah inadvertently invites God into his heart to deconstruct his idol. He's invited God to teach him the breadth and depth of salvation and what's God's vision for salvation in the whole world, not just Israel. If you pray for salvation to belong to the Lord, you better be ready to see what that answer looks like. And for our community, if we want to pray this, salvation belongs to the Lord, we shouldn't be surprised if it looks radically different than we imagined or radically different than we're even comfortable with. So stepping back, on the surface, yeah, this looks like a nice godly prayer. But when we get inside of it, we see it's just a mess. Jonah, he's rewritten history. He has a distorted view of his circumstances. He's blaming God for his distress. He still hasn't acknowledged his sin. He's still clinging to his idol. Yet this prayer makes up the center of the book of Jonah. This is the center of his book. As Jonah reflects on his story and retells it to us, Jonah sees this broken and confused and messy self-centered prayer as a turning moment in his life, a defining moment. And Jonah, he wants us to see that prayer is the beginning of renewal. He wants us to know that God answered this prayer, that it was a game changer for him. It's confusing, don't you think? Like, why would God answer a prayer like this? One scholar, Dr. Holbert, says that the fish was so disgusted by Jonah's hypocritical prayer that it's no wonder that immediately after Jonah shouts, deliverance belongs to Yahweh, that the fish vomits. And the Hebrew word, it's visceral, it's barf, it's it's, it's gross. I think of Wayne's world, you know, like, if you're going to spew, spew into this. But it's just, it's... It's gross, and uh, undoubtedly, you know, the fish does this because uh, God commands him to. Verse 10 says, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. But the, ver- the word still, it, it implies a repugnance to Jonah's presence and to his prayer. And I think we can back that up because God, he speaks to the fish. He's not quite ready to speak to Jonah again yet. But God still hears Jonah's prayer. He still responds. He still answers. He still delivers Jonah out of the belly of Sheol. We can almost hear God saying, all right, spit him out. I can keep working with him. But we still have to ask, why? Why would God answer a prayer like this? It has everything to do with how long Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. 
It's a very rare phrase in the scriptures, three days and three nights. And Jesus, he grabs a hold of this saying and he says, listen up, which I want to say to all of you, listen up. This is really about Jesus. Look at Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Doesn't seem all that important at first. After Jesus was crucified, he says he spent three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Christian theology throughout the centuries has really grappled with what, what does this mean? Uh, and this is what we rehearse in our creeds week after week. You know, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. But saying he descended to the dead is just a nice modern update. The creed actually says he descended to hell. And hell in the Greek is Hades, which is the Greek rendering of Sheol. Jesus descended to Sheol. Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He descended to Sheol. The point is that in leaving heaven and glory, Jesus' descent knew no bounds. He descended and became a man. He continued descending and became a servant. He knew death. He even descended to Sheol. And whatever he did there, we can't know for certain. People speculate. But here's what we know for certain. Jonah tried as hard as he could to descend away from God, but he could not outrun God's grace and presence. God was unwilling to let Sheol become a fixed location for Jonah. Jonah was just millimeters away from crossing a line from which he could never return. Jonah went to Sheol in attempts to escape from God. He chose death over life, but in doing so, he discovered that God is willing to descend into the darkest of places to rescue us. Because Jesus went to Sheol so that Jonah didn't have to. By any measure, Jonah is exactly where he should be. He's dug his own grave. He prays one of the most narcissistic prayers in all of the scriptures. Probably the only narcissistic prayer in all of the scriptures. And yet Jonah, in writing his book, sees that this prayer brought him into God's salvation. Prayer was the difference between him remaining in Sheol forever and being saved by God. What we all tend to forget is that we're only moments away from Sheol. What is our lifespan in view of eternity? We stand on the precipice of eternity every single day, and every single day people are falling off the edge into eternity, and whatever our trajectory is, that location will be fixed. We will be with or without God for all eternity. But even in this broken and selfish prayer, God listened to Jonah. God answered. God delivered. Because God doesn't save the worthy. He saves the unworthy. He saves the people who've dug their own graves. People who have run as far away from him as possible. People who deserve death. But you cannot out-sin God's grace. You need to hear that. You cannot out-sin God's grace. 
You cannot go too far. On this side of eternity, there is no place you can go where you cannot find God and the opportunity to turn to him. It doesn't matter how far you've run or how far down you've descended. And you don't have to wait to hit rock bottom. You don't have to wait to be in the belly of a whale for three days. At any moment, you can turn to God in prayer and declare, salvation belongs to the Lord. Declared, God, only you can save. Only you can save me. And I'm willing to see the implications of what that looks like for the rest of my life. At any moment, you can turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Save me. And God is always more willing to hear than we are to pray. God isn't looking for perfect prayers. He's not, in this case, even looking for an honest prayer although that would be preferable. He's looking for the slightest inclination in us to open ourselves up to him. And as flawed as Jonah is, an ounce of openness returns amid his rampant imperfections. And God says, I can work with that. You don't have to have the right words. You just have to be willing to humble yourself and turn to God, even if in doing so you're still filled with pride. Because God, he doesn't work with some future version of ourselves, but with us where we are. And while salvation is a moment, a defining moment in all of our lives, it is also something that is worked out for the remainder of our lives. Salvation is a process in which God brings it about in our lives day after day after day. And so it reminds us, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything figured out about God to join him in this salvation Jonah had parts of God all wrong. And yet you can pray and turn to God and he will meet you as you are wherever you are. Even if that's in the belly of a great fish or even if it's your own personal Sheol that you've created for yourself. This is why Jonah sees prayer as a turning point in his story. It wasn't a pretty prayer. It was a mess, but God responded, and God transformed the belly of the whale from a grave into a womb. This was the start of deeper renewal in Jonah's life. He looks in hindsight, and he sees how God took this little, selfish, narcissistic prayer, and yet he answered it in ways that Jonah couldn't ever imagine. That new life came bursting forth from that point onward. Was Jonah perfect? God, no. God continued to work on him and move him forward. Jonah wants us to know that before he could find his way to Nineveh, before he could even live out his calling, he had to find his way back to God. He had to remember the Lord. He had to pray. And before we can find our way in Vancouver, before we can figure out our own callings, we have to do the same. And like Jonah, we'll discover that our brokenness and our sin and our mess doesn't stop God from calling us and using us for his purposes in the city. But any meaningful renewal always starts with broken prayer.